Section 6 of The Journey of Alvar Núñez Cabeza de Vaca and His Companions From Florida to the Pacific, 1528-1536 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org Recording by Sue Anderson the journey of Alvar Núñez Cabeza de Vaca and his companions from Florida to the Pacific, 1528-1536, translated by Fanny Bandelier. Section 6. These Indians and the ones we left behind told us a very strange tale. From their account it may have occurred fifteen or sixteen years ago. They said there wandered then about the country a man whom they called Bad Thing, of small stature and with a beard, although they never could see his features clearly, and whenever he would approach their dwellings their hair would stand on end and they began to tremble. In the doorway of the lodge there would then appear a firebrand. That man thereupon came in, and took hold of any one he chose, and with a sharp knife of flint as broad as a hand and two palms in length, he cut their side, and, thrusting his hand through the gash, took out the entrails, cutting off a piece one palm long, which he threw into the fire. Afterwards he made three cuts in one of the arms, the second one at the place where people are usually bled, and twisted the arm, but reset it soon afterwards. Then he placed his hands on the wounds, and they told us they closed at once. Many times he appeared among them while they were dancing, sometimes in the dress of a woman, and again as a man, and whenever he took a notion to do it, he would seize the hut or lodge, take it up into the air, and come down with it again with a great crash. They also told us how, many a time, they set food before him, but he never would partake of it, and when they asked him where he came from, and where he had his home, he pointed to a rent in the earth, and said his house was down below. We laughed very much at those stories, making fun of them, and then, seeing our incredulity, they brought to us many of those whom they said he had taken, and we saw the scars of his slashes in the places as they told. We told them he was a demon, and explained as best we could that, if they would believe in God our Lord, and be Christians like ourselves, they would not have to fear that man, nor would he come and do such things unto them, and they might be sure that as long as we were in this country he would not dare to appear again. At this they were greatly pleased, and lost much of their apprehension. The same Indians told us they had seen the Asturian and Figueroa with other Indians further along on the coast, which we had named for the figs, all those people had no reckoning by either sun or moon, nor do they count by months and years. They judge of the seasons by the ripening of fruits, by the time when fish die, and by the appearance of the stars, in all of which they are very clever and expert. While with them we were always well treated, although our food was never too plentiful, and we had to carry our own water and wood. Their dwellings and their food are like those of the others, but they are much more exposed to starvation, 
having neither maize nor acorns or nuts. We always went about naked like they, and covered ourselves at night with deerskins. During six of the eighteen months we were with them, we suffered much from hunger, because they do not have fish either. At the end of that time the tunas began to ripen, and without their noticing it, we left and went to other Indians further ahead, called Maliacones, at a distance of one day's travel. Three days after I and the Negro reached there, I sent him back to get Castillo and Dorantes, and after they rejoined me, we all departed in company of the Indians, who went to eat a small fruit of some trees. On this fruit they subsist for ten or twelve days, until the tunas are fully ripe. There they joined other Indians called Arbadaos, whom we found to be so sick, emaciated, and swollen, that we were greatly astonished. The Indians with whom we had come went back on the same trail, and we told them that we wished to remain with the others, at which they showed grief. So we remained with the others in the field near their dwellings. When the Indians saw us, they clustered together, after having talked among themselves, and each one of them took the one of us whom he claimed by the hand, and they led us to their homes. While with those we suffered more from hunger than among any of the others, in the course of a whole day we did not eat more than two handfuls of the fruit, which was green, and contained so much milky juice that our mouths were burnt by it. As water was very scarce, whoever ate of them became very thirsty, and we finally grew so hungry that we purchased two dogs in exchange for nets and other things, and a hide with which I used to cover myself. I have said already that through all that country we went naked, and, not being accustomed to it, like snakes we shed our skin twice a year. Exposure to the sun and air covered our chests and backs with big sores that made it very painful to carry the big and heavy loads, the ropes of which cut into the flesh of our arms. The country is so rough and overgrown that often after we had gathered firewood in the timber and dragged it out, we would bleed freely from the thorns and spines which cut and slashed us wherever they touched. Sometimes it happened that I was unable to carry or drag out the firewood after I had gathered it with much loss of blood. In all that trouble my only relief or consolation was to remember the passion of our Savior Jesus Christ and the blood he shed for me, and to ponder how much greater his sufferings had been from the thorns than those I was then enduring. I made a contract with the Indians to make combs, arrows, bows, and nets for them. Also we made matting of which their lodges are constructed, and of which they are in very great need, for although they know how to make it, they do not like to do any work in order to be able to go in quest of food. Whenever they work, they suffer greatly from hunger. Again, they would make me scrape skins and tan them, and the greatest luxury I enjoyed was on the day they would give me a skin to scrape, because I scraped it very deep in order to eat the parings, which would last me two or three days. It also happened to us, while being with these Indians and those before mentioned, that we would eat a piece of meat which they gave us raw, because if we broiled it, 
the first Indian coming along would snatch and eat it. It seemed useless to take any pains in view of what we might expect. Neither were we particular to go to any trouble in order to have it broiled, and might just as well eat it raw. Such was the life we led there, and even that scanty maintenance we had to earn through the objects made by our own hands for barter. After we had eaten the dogs, it seemed to us that we had enough strength to go further on, so we commended ourselves to the guidance of God our Lord, took leave of these Indians, and they put us on the track of others of their language who were nearby. While on our way it began to rain, and rained the whole day, we lost the trail and found ourselves in a big forest where we gathered plenty of leaves of tunas, which we roasted that same night in an oven made by ourselves, and so much heat did we give them that in the morning they were fit to be eaten. After eating them we commended ourselves to God again, and left, and struck the trail we had lost. Issuing from the timber we met other Indian dwellings, where we saw two women and some boys who were so frightened at the sight of us that they fled to the forest to call the men that were in the woods. When these came, they hid behind trees to peep at us. We called them, and they approached in great fear. After we addressed them, they told us they were very hungry, and that nearby were many of their own lodges, and they would take us to them. So that night we reached a site where there were fifty dwellings, and the people were stupefied at seeing us, and showed much fear. After they had recovered from their astonishment, they approached and put their hands to our faces and bodies, and afterwards to their faces and bodies also. We stayed there that night, and in the morning they brought their sick people, begging us to cross them, and gave us what they had to eat, which were leaves of tunas and green tunas baked. For the sake of this good treatment, giving us all they had, content with being without anything for our sake, we remained with them several days, and during that time others came from further on. When those were about to leave, we told the first ones that we intended to accompany them. This made them very sad, and they begged us on their knees not to go, but we went and left them in tears at our departure, as it pained them greatly. From the island of ill fate on, all the Indians whom we met as far as to here have the custom of not cohabiting with their wives when these are pregnant, and until the child is two years old. Children are nursed to the age of twelve years when they are old enough to gather their own food. We asked them why they brought their children up in that way, and they replied it was owing to the great scarcity of food all over that country, since it was common, as we saw, to be without it two or three days, and even four, and for that reason they nursed the little ones so long to preserve them from perishing through hunger, and even if they should survive, they would be very delicate and weak. When one falls sick, he is left to die in the field, unless he be somebody's child. Other invalids, if unable to travel, are abandoned, but a son or brother is taken along. There is also a custom for husbands to leave their wives if they do not agree, and to remarry whom they please. This applies to the younger men, but after they have had children, 
they stay with their women and do not leave them. When in any village they quarrel among themselves, they strike and beat each other until worn out, and only then do they separate. Sometimes their women step in and separate them, but men never interfere in these brawls, nor do they ever use bow and arrow, and after they have fought and settled the question, they take their lodges and women and go out into the field to live apart from the others till their anger is over, and when they are no longer angry and their resentment has passed away, they return to the village and are as friendly again as if nothing had happened. There is no need of mediation. When the quarrel is between unmarried people, they go to some of the neighbors, who, even if they be enemies, will receive them well, with great festivities and gifts of what they have, so that, when pacified, they return to their village wealthy. They all are warriors, and so astute in guarding themselves from an enemy, as if trained in continuous wars and in Italy, when in places where their enemies can offend them, they set their lodges on the edge of the roughest and densest timber, and dig a trench close to it in which they sleep. The men at arms are hidden by brushwood, and have their loopholes, and are so well covered and concealed that even at close range they cannot be seen. To the densest part of the forest they open a very narrow trail, and there arrange a sleeping place for their women and children. As night sets in, they build fires in the lodges, so that if there should be spies about, these would think the people to sleep there. And before sunrise, they light the same fires again, now ditches without being seen or discovered. In case there are no forests wherein they can hide thus and prepare their ambushes, they settle on the plain wherever it appears most appropriate, surrounding the place with trenches protected by brushwood. In these they open loopholes through which they can reach the enemy with arrows, and whose parapets they build for the night. While I was with the Agüenes, and these not on their guard, their enemies surprised them at midnight, killing three and wounding a number, so that they fled from their houses to the forest. As soon, however, as they noticed that the others had gone, they went back, picked up all the arrows the others had spent and left, and followed them as stealthily as possible. That same night they reached the others' dwellings unnoticed, and at sunrise attacked, killing five, besides wounding a great many. The rest made their escape, leaving homes and bows behind with all their other belongings. A short time after this, the women of those calling themselves Givenes came, held a parley, and made them friends again. But sometimes women are also the cause of war. All those people, when they have personal questions and are not of one family, kill each other in a treacherous way and deal most cruelly with one another. Those Indians are the readiest people with their weapons of all I have seen in the world for when they suspect the approach of an enemy, they lie awake all night with their bows within reach and a dozen of arrows, and before one goes to sleep he tries his bow, and should the string not be to his liking, he arranges it until it suits him. 
often they crawl out of their dwellings so as not to be seen and look and spy in every direction after danger and if they detect anything in less than no time are they all out in the field with their bows and arrows thus they remain until daybreak running hither and thither whenever they see danger or suspect their enemies might approach when day comes they unstring their bows until they go hunting the strings of their bows are made of deer sinews they fight in a crouching posture and while shooting at each other talk and dart from one side to the other to dodge the arrows of the foe in this way they receive little damage from our crossbows and muskets on the contrary the indians laugh at those weapons because they are not dangerous to them on the plains over which they roam they are only good in narrows and in swamps horses are what the indians dread most and by means of which they will be overcome whoever has to fight indians must take great care not to let them think he is disheartened or that he covets what they own in war they must be treated very harshly for should they notice either fear or greed they are people who know how to abide their time for revenge and to take courage from the fears of their enemy after spending all their arrows they part going each their own way and without attempting pursuit although one side might have more men than the other such is their custom many times they are shot through and through with arrows but do not die from the wounds as long as the bowels or heart are not touched on the contrary they recover quickly their eyesight hearing and senses in general are better i believe than those of any other men upon earth they can stand and have to stand much hunger thirst and cold being more accustomed and used to it than others this i wish to state here since besides that all men are curious to know the habits and devices of others such as might come in contact with those people should be informed of their customs and deeds which will be of no small profit to them i also do wish to tell of the nations and languages met with from the island of ill fate to the last ones the cuchindados on the island of ill fate two languages are spoken the ones they call capoques and the others han on the mainland facing the island are others called of charuco who take their name from the woods in which they live further on along the seashore are others who call themselves degenes and in front of them others named those of mendica further on on the coast are the quevenes in front further inland the mariames and following the coast we came to the guacones and in front of them inland the iguaces after those came the atayos and behind them others called decubadaos of whom there are a great many further on in this direction on the coast live the quitoles and in front of them inland the chavavares these are joined by the maleacones and the quitalchuches and others called susolas and comos ahead on the coast are the camolas and further on those whom we call the people of the figs all those people have homes and villages and speak different languages among them is a language wherein they call men miraaka araka and dogs so in this whole country they make themselves drunk by a certain smoke for which they give all they have 
They also drink something which they extract from leaves of trees, like unto water oak, toasting them on the fire in a vessel like a low-necked bottle. When the leaves are toasted, they fill the vessel with water and hold it over the fire so long until it has thrice boiled. Then they pour the liquid into a bowl made of a gourd cut in twain. As soon as there is much foam on it, they drink it as hot as they can stand, and from the time they take it out of the first vessel until they drink, they shout, Who wants to drink? When the women hear this, they stand still at once, and although they carry a very heavy load, do not dare to move. Should one of them stir, she is dishonored and beaten. In a great rage they spill the liquid they have prepared and spit out what they drank, easily and without pain. The reason for this custom, they say, is that when they want to drink that water and the women stir from the spot where they first hear the shouts, an evil substance gets into the liquid that penetrates their bodies, causing them to die before long. All the time the water boils, the vessel must be kept covered. Should it be uncovered while a woman comes along, they pour it out and do not drink of it. It is yellow, and they drink it for three days without partaking of any food, each consuming an aroba and a half every day. When the women are ill, they only seek food for themselves, because nobody else eats of what they bring. During the time I was among them, I saw something very repulsive, namely a man married to another. Such are impotent and womanish beings, who dress like women and perform the office of women, but use the bow and carry big loads. Among these Indians we saw many of them. They are more robust than the other men, taller, and can bear heavy burdens. After parting from those we had left in tears, we went with the others to their homes and were very well received. They brought us their children to touch, and gave us much mesquite meal. This mesquiques is a fruit which, while on the tree, is very bitter and like the carob bean. It is eaten with earth, and then becomes sweet and very palatable. The way they prepare it is to dig a hole in the ground, of the depth it suits them, and after the fruit is put in that hole, with a piece of wood, the thickness of a leg and one and a half fathoms long, they pound it to a meal, and to the earth that mixes with it in the hole, they add several handfuls and pound again for a while. After that they empty it into a vessel, like a small round basket, and pour in enough water to cover it fully, so that there is water on top. Then the one who has done the pounding tastes it, and if it appears to him not sweet enough, he calls for more earth to add, and this he does until it suits his taste. Then all squat around, and each one reaches out with his hand and takes as much as he can. The seeds and peelings they set apart on hides, and the one who has done the pounding throws them back into the vessel, pouring water over them again. They squeeze out the juice and water, and the husks and seeds they again put on hides, repeating the operation three or four times at every pounding. Those who take part in that banquet which is for them a great occasion, get very big bellies from the earth and water they swallow. Now of this the Indians made a great feast in our behalf, 
and danced and celebrated all the time we were with them, and at night six Indians to each one of us kept watch at the entrance to the lodge we slept in, without allowing anybody to enter before sunrise. When we were about to leave, some women happened to come that belonged to Indians living further on, and informing ourselves where their abodes were, we left, although the Indians entreated us to remain a day longer, since the place we wanted to go to was very far away, and there was no trail to it. They showed us how the women who had just arrived were tired, but that if we would let them rest until the next day, they then would accompany and guide us. We left, nevertheless, and soon the women followed with others of the village. There being no trails in that country, we soon lost our way. At the end of four leagues we reached a spring, and there met the women who had followed us, and who told us of all they had gone through until they fell in with us again. We went on, taking them along as guides. In the afternoon we crossed a big river, the water being more than waist-deep. It may have been as wide as the one of Sevilla, and had a swift current. At sunset we reached a hundred Indian huts, and as we approached, the people came out to receive us, shouting frightfully and slapping their thighs. They carried perforated gourds filled with pebbles, which are ceremonial objects of great importance. They only use them at dances, or as medicine to cure, and nobody dares touch them but themselves. They claim that those gourds have healing virtues, and that they come from heaven, not being found in that country, nor do they know where they come from, except that the rivers carry them down when they rise and overflow the land. So great was their excitement and eagerness to touch us, that every one wanting to be first, they nearly squeezed us to death, and, without suffering our feet to touch the ground, carried us to their abodes. So many crowded down upon us that we took refuge in the lodges they had prepared for our accommodation, and in no manner consented to be feasted by them on that night. End of section 6